time of worship this morning. So we're going to get our Bibles out and open to John chapter 12. We'll start there this morning. John 12, page 1238 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, we'll be doing a little flipping around in the beginning of this message this morning. Uh, today marks the, as Pastor Rod already said, the beginning of Passion Week. It is Palm Sunday. And we will look at that passage in John 12 in just a moment. It's also the day that we're completing our four-week study on marriage. And so hopefully you have your listening guide. You can fill in those blanks as we go through that. And we're preparing to move towards uh, next Sunday and the celebration of the resurrection as our Lord Jesus uh, goes into Jerusalem. And the crowd is cheering and shouting, Hosanna, which means, save now, Lord, save now. And uh, whenever it comes to this time of the year, I, the songs that we sing and the, the, the passages that we read and the thoughts in our mind, I, I always uh, reflect on my beginning times as a, as a new believer, as a young man, and just uh, trying to... Uh, see all these things for the very first time and I uh, just remember uh, it would have been so so helpful early on if somebody would explain to me what this Hosanna word was I was singing it and I was thinking it's good I just wish I knew what it meant and I try to always encourage you that the people of God yelled Hosanna save now save us now Lord let's pray and then we're going to begin to study this morning this message I've entitled Forecast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness towards us in your word. Lord, thank you that you had things that you wanted to say to your people. And God, help us right now to understand that, Lord, thousands of years ago, when this word that we're going to look at was written, you knew today who would be here you knew what I'd say. You knew the potential and the power for change and for healing that would come in this moment in marriages and relationships and lives in understanding. You knew that, Lord. And God, what we need is we need to know that. We need you to help us realize that there's no secrets in this room to you. And that your intention and your heart is to minister, to help, to heal, to work mightily for good in every circumstance and situation in this room. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for what you're going to do today. We pray now that you'd give us ears to hear, that you would open up our hearts to receive your word, Lord. That we'd want to know what you say, that we'd believe that you are good and sovereign. And we thank you, Father, in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now, for some, I, I was thinking about this this week when I at first, uh, God just really put on my heart to spend some time talking about marriage uh, a few months ago when we sort of fit this into the calendar, knowing that we'd be between book studies as we always are, and we're looking towards Easter, and on the other side of Easter, we'll be starting a series in the Gospel of John, which I'm very, very excited about. And as I thought about uh, this marriage time, uh, the first thing I started thinking about was today. I started thinking about the last message, not the first message, and worked backwards. You see, what I'm going to talk to you about today is something that I have been thinking about for over six months now. I have been thinking about this issue. I've been just uh, over and over. I've had conversations with many of you in this room when I begin to talk about this you're going to go oh yeah I heard brother Tony talking about this and this circumstance or that circumstance because I've been thinking about this and praying about this and really just trying to get my head around the power of what we're going to talk about this morning the, the and how overlooked it is and how so how could something be so incredibly powerful and be so prevalent in all of our lives, and yet we miss it. We, 
We overlook it. Even when we talk about it, we, we speak of it as if it's just a, a passing thing and, and it's not really a big deal. And yet, as we're going to see this morning, it has the power to disrupt your lives to such a degree that you could even turn away from the things that you profess in your heart to believe this morning. That's how powerful this is. And we all deal with it. And I hope this morning as we're talking about these issues that you will realize that this is my issue, this is your issue, this is all of our issues. And Jesus addresses this in a multitude of ways. And I think that today on Palm Sunday is the perfect setting to have the conversation that we'll have today. So exhibit A, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. I want to have a discussion this morning about expectations. Expectations. John chapter 12, verse 12. The scripture says, On the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna. Now understand, it's, the, it's, it's Passover time. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He is about to go in uh, riding on a colt in uh, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is where he's going to go into the upper room. He's going to eat the Last Supper with his disciples. He's going to wash their feet. All of these things are about to take place. He is at the, the, the apex of his earthly ministry and he's careening towards the cross now and so every millisecond of his life is just so incredibly prophetic in the way things are laying out and so here he is coming into Jerusalem and the crowd has just swollen all around the streets and he's coming in and they're shouting Hosanna Hosanna they go on to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the King of Israel then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And they're screaming, Hosanna. And they're waving these palm branches. And they're ushering in their king. And the disciples are thinking, wow, what a moment this is. Then if you... Flip over to John chapter 19. You can write that next to your exhibit A so you can remember where we were. If you flip over to John 19, verse 13, these verses will come up on the screen. Four days after they shouted Hosanna and welcomed him in, we pick up the scene where Jesus is being tried by Pilate. And the scripture says, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat in the place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, it was Gabbatha. Now, it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Now, understand, we're, it's Friday. And, and the, 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 the same crowd that was screaming Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who was ushering in their king, the same crowd then says in verse 15, they cried out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then Pilate delivered him to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. My goodness, how could four days change so much? What is the disconnect here in this uh, situation. What, what is so uh, twisted in this story that, that this crowd would turn on such a dime? That uh, one moment they would call him king, the next moment they would turn him over to be crucified. Well, when they're yelling king, what do they mean by king? What do they expect Jesus to do for them. Mark talked about this before in the first reading before the choir sang. That they have an expectation of who Jesus is and what he will do. And their expectation is different 
than what the reality is of what Jesus came, in fact, to do. I just want you to stop and consider with me for a moment how fickle human affections are. I could give you a thousand examples. I'll give you two. There are some days when I go home at the end of the day and I pull up in my driveway and I think to myself, Lord, thank you for uh, giving me today to serve you. And it's such an honor and a privilege to uh, be able to give my life to your work and to study your word and minister to your people and shepherd your flock. And I'm so grateful for that. And then there are other days that I pull up in my driveway and I say, God, thank you that I'm not a head football coach. Thank you. Because no matter how many games I win this year, if I don't win next year, you'll be calling for my head. There is no greater example of the fickleness of the human heart than in our dysfunctional love for football. We will crucify who was just our hero a moment ago in a heartbeat, won't we? Yes, we will. What about politics? Huh? Do you know in the history of Gallup polls, do you know what the all-time record is for the highest approval rating by a president of the United States all-time? Who holds the record for the highest all-time approval rating? 90% of Americans approved of George W. Bush a week after 9-11. Do you know who holds the lowest all-time approval rating in the history of the presidency of the United States of America? George W. Bush. When he left office, he had a 22% approval rating. We're not fickle people, are we? No. We stand by our guy. That's what we do. Lest we cast judgment on this crowd. You see, it wasn't that the people were cheering because there was a Savior come sent from God who was going to rescue them, the one that they had been waiting for, the one that they had been longing for, for, for all of human history. Oh, no, no, no. They wanted a Messiah who was going to conquer their Roman oppressors. They wanted a king who was going to come and, and bring political and economic freedom. And they were so wrapped up in what they wanted and what they desired that they began to project those wants and desires onto the object of those wants and desires, which was Jesus. They literally became convinced that He had come to do something that He had never indicated or said that He had come to do. And so here's what happens. Their desires and their expectations became their reality. So much so that they began to shout, crucify Him. We're so convinced that He let us down, that He disappointed us, that He didn't do what He was supposed to do, that we think He ought to die. And the whole time, Jesus had a much greater purpose in coming, didn't he? He's thinking, you really just want me to bring you political and economic freedom? You really just want me to address your current circumstances? Is that really what you want? You have no idea what I've come to accomplish. But you see, in the heat of the battle, we want relief from our present circumstances. And Jesus is bringing rescue from our eternal consequences. Yeah. He's the king who came to die. And he knew, he knew the praise and the pageantry of the crowd was fleeting. And he knows better than anybody the fickleness of the human heart, which is why in Luke chapter 19, the scripture says that in this moment, as he's riding into Jerusalem, and they're cheering and yelling and screaming and welcoming him in. The Bible says as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. 
tears running down his face. He said, if you, only you, if you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. You know, Jesus didn't rain fire from heaven because they had misappropriated their affections, because they had projected things on him that were wrong, that he never deserved, that he never said. They were holding to a standard they shouldn't have held him to. They were trying to do things that had nothing to do with him. I mean, it clearly, here's a moment where Jesus could have just got off the donkey and said, seriously? But he didn't do that. With tears down his face, he said, if only you had known. But because he didn't meet their needs, because he didn't live up to their expectations, they turned on him. In every single human heart, there's this conflict about how to deal with unmet needs and unmet expectations because we all have them. And we have to decide and we have to wrestle through what are we going to do with them? How are we going to address them? Jesus didn't perform up to their idea so they turned on him are we going to be people who do things like that so here's the first thing I want you to know based on exhibit a our expectations shape our deepest beliefs and understandings about life the deepest beliefs and understandings that you have in your life the things this morning, I hope you're listening to me, that you are most certain of. The things that you would say, I believe these at the core of who I am. Those things are shaped by your expectations. And if you don't think they are, you are a fool. Because they are. And even this week, as I, I've thought about this for six months, and even this week in, in preparing for this message, I was examining my own heart and just, just doing some cleaning and some just checking my expectations in the realization of how powerful they are. But some might say, well, you know, Pastor this is just a crowd of people. You know, they're, 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 they were marginal followers of Jesus. I mean, they might have heard him speak once or twice. They, they, a lot of the things that they knew were passed from ear to ear. You know, so I'm not really sure we can hold them that accountable and come to such a, a, a stern uh, understanding of expectations. Okay, fine, exhibit B. Matthew chapter 11. Let's talk about somebody that Jesus did ministry with. Let's talk about somebody who, if anybody knew who Jesus was and why He came to earth, it was this man. Matthew 11. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding His twelve disciples that He departed from there to teach and preach in the cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, let's just clarify who we're talking about here. The John that we're talking about in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 11 is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison. And he is uh, wasting away in this jail cell... And he begins to think about his circumstances. He begins to examine the situation that he's in. And he starts to question, now wait a minute. Maybe Jesus isn't the one he says he is. Maybe there's another. Now, now you got to understand something here. When he sends two of his disciples to go and find Jesus and ask him this question... This is indicating to you and to me that his faith has been rattled to the core. This is the person who said when Jesus walked up to the Jordan, he said, this is the Lamb of God who's come to what? Take away the sins of the world. He's the forerunner of Jesus, but when he's in jail 
and things aren't going the way he expected them to go when what he thought was going to happen didn't happen, when his expectations collided with the reality of his circumstances, suddenly he began to wonder, wait a minute, I don't even know if Jesus is the one he said he is. I don't even know if he's the one I've been saying he is. So I need to go ask him. The power of expectation. If you think that Jesus' job on this earth is to keep you out of trouble, you're going to be in big trouble when you get in trouble. So notice what Jesus says in verse 4. Notice his answer. Again, how did Jesus answer the crowd? He wept. Now, how's he going to answer John? Listen, I'm picturing Jesus standing there doing ministry, and these two uh, disciples of John the Baptist come up and say, well, John doesn't even know if you're who you say you are. Do we need to look for another? I'm picturing Jesus, you know, pulling the pin out of a hand grenade and saying, squeeze this and go hand it to him in there, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, just saying... Seriously? Really? This is what, what it's come to? But look at his answer. Jesus answered in verse 4 and he says, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now watch. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying some people are going to get disillusioned because I don't perform up to their plan. He's saying there's going to be people that are going to get offended because I'm not going to do the things that they think I ought to do. He's saying, blessed is he who's not offended because they've got some ideas about who I am and what I'm going to do. And when I don't do those things, there's high potential for offense. He's warning me and you this morning that there's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people who become discouraged. Because Jesus doesn't answer their prayers the way they think they ought to be answered. See, Jesus isn't obligated to perform to our standards or plans. But as obvious as that sounds, isn't it true that in a sense every Sunday's Palm Sunday? Isn't it? Isn't every single Sunday... In every church, in every place around the world, in a sense, Palm Sunday. Isn't it every single time a church gathers amongst a crowd, singing and smiling and praising, they're just one, one unexpected trial away from walking away? Isn't that true? Of course it's true. Because we all have expectations. We all have these ideas in our head about who God is and what He'll do. Who's here today for the last time? Maybe for a long time. That after today, we won't see you for a while. Now, you don't know that yet, but there's a scenario lurking in your future. There's a phone call that's coming this week. There's some news that only heaven knows about barreling down the tracks right at you. And if you got wrong expectations, when it hits you, it is going to derail you and knock you for such a loop. You're not going to know which way is up. 
I just hope you have the courage to drive down to the church and say, Brother Tony, I just need to know. Is he the one he says he is, or do I need to look for another? Because so many people don't even have the courage to ask. They're so certain of their expectations that it trumps everything that they have professed to know up until that point. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And you say, well, Brother Tony, okay, the crowd, they were marginal at best. Okay, John the Baptist, he, he did ministry around Jesus. He, he was a, a relative of Jesus, but, but you know, come on. If you personally knew Jesus, if you had a personal relationship with Him, your expectations wouldn't trump what you knew about Him, would it? Exhibit C. Expectations can turn even the greatest gift in your life into a stumbling block. See, I think that's what Exhibit B teaches us. That, that here John the Baptist, the greatest gift in his life was now his stumbling block. Now I'm going to tell you something here. In just a few minutes, I'm going to show you where some of you in this room right now today, you're sitting next to the greatest gift in your life and it has become your stumbling block. And it's because of your expectations. So let's look at exhibit C. John chapter 11. You know the story. Jesus gets word. He's doing ministry in Bethany. He gets word and uh, they come to Him and say, Jesus... The one you love is sick. Oh, you mean my good friend Lazarus. We're friends. I love Lazarus. I love his sisters. I love his family. We spend time together. We are close. We have a relationship such that they can come to him and say, this one you love, he's sick. And you need to come. And Jesus doesn't come. He waits a couple days. He keeps doing ministry. And they're all standing around watching Lazarus get sicker and sicker and sicker. And every time Lazarus you know, gets a little sicker and every time he gasps for that last breath and every, their expectation of who Jesus is goes up. And, and the knowledge and comfort of who they've known Him to be goes down. And the, 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 the emotion of the moment begins to trump everything that they knew about Him up to that point. So in verse 17, Jesus finally shows up. And He found that Lazarus was already, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and she met him. And Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, do you think that Martha is saying to Jesus in a, in, a, in a thankful, happy sense that Jesus, I'm so grateful that you're on earth. I'm so grateful that you are God in the flesh. I'm so grateful that there's no miracle that you can't perform. I'm just grateful that I get to know you and see you and, and that you're a part of my life and I'm a part of your life. And oh, by the way, my brother's died. Do you think that's the way she's saying that? Or do you think she's saying, hey... I thought we were close. I mean, I thought we had an understanding. I thought that you cared about us and loved us. And then now in our time of need, you're not there. You, don't, you didn't show up. You could have solved this, but, but you waited. 
You lingered around. You put other people's needs before my needs. I'm looking around. I'm seeing you working in other people's lives. You're ministering their lives and you're preaching the gospel. But you've forgotten that my brother's dying. And I know we've been friends. I know we've been close. I know we've eaten together multiple times. But, but hey, this ain't right. And he'd still be alive if you would have came when we told you to come. That's one sister. Then in verse 32, Mary comes to where Jesus was and she saw him and she fell down at his feet. Now, now understand, neither of these ladies is denying the deity of Jesus. But they're denying something. She falls down at his feet. And she says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She says, I I still believe you're God. But you failed me. You failed me. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. See, he wept over Jerusalem. He comforted John by telling him, reminding him of all the miracles he did and then reminding him that blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. And then here with Mary and Martha, He's troubled. He groans. That, that the, 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 the word troubled, it means to be agitated. The phrase groaned in the spirit, it's the best translation is to, to be filled with indignation. It, it, it's a word that literally means to snort like a horse. You know, when a horse is frustrated and it just snorts at you. That's what it literally means. Clearly, Jesus is is emotionally moved by this situation, and he's he's not happy. Why is Jesus agitated and filled with indignation? He's looking at these two ladies who aren't denying the fact that he's God. But what are they denying? They're denying the fact that he's good. I'll bow down to you because you're Lord. But if you were good, you would save my brother. And Jesus is is agitated and hurt. And because of their faulty understanding... Their expectations, their understandings have been of who he is have been shifted. They've been altered. What's the greater miracle, to raise a sick man or to raise a dead man? Jesus has already told them twice up until this point what he was going to do. He's already told John the Baptist multiple times what was going to happen. He's already told the crowd multiple times what was going to happen. But it didn't change their expectation. How many times are we frustrated because Jesus didn't seem to be good to us in our time of need? It's not that we doubt that he's God. It's just that we doubt that he's good. Do you think you can doubt his goodness and not his godness? And not offend him? And not fill him with indignation? Not trouble him in his spirit? See, what we fail to see in our moments of need is that sometimes our Lazarus needs to die so that God can do a greater miracle. Sometimes the Lazarus in your life and the Lazarus in my life needs to die 
But you see, we don't have the perspective to see that. We don't have the frame to, to back up and see that. And so because we can't see that, we won't see that. And we just reel in and we, we start building a, a, a wall out of our expectations about what God ought to do and how He ought to do it. we got to stop sitting around, investing our time and thinking about what God isn't doing. And realize our lack of perspective. And what has God said that He would do? And what has God said that He would be doing? And reconcile our expectations to what He has said and not what we think. How often are we offended at God? And all the while, He's accomplishing a greater purpose. You know how I know that's true? And I know how you know that's true. Is because you know this morning there's not one of us in this room that can't say right now. You can look back in the rearview mirror of your life and you can think of a time right now when you're so glad God didn't answer your prayer. And you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and now you're like, God, thank you. Thank you for not listening to me. I don't know what you know. It's the Palm Sunday story. Jesus didn't do what people expect Him to do. So they turn on Him. What would fuel a man like John the Baptist to say, well, are you the one or do we need to look for another? What fuels Mary and Martha to say, well, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What fuels it is the human propensity that we all have of being dissatisfied with other people when they don't meet our needs or expectations. It is a relationship killer. It is a, it will kill your relationship with Christ. It will kill your relationship with your spouse. It'll kill your relationship with your co-workers, with everybody you know. The silent killer of relationships is faulty expectations. And it's silent because it lurks under the surface. That you see, you, you don't know that your expectations are faulty until it's too late. Unless you address them beforehand. And this is why I've been so consumed about this issue of expectations. Because I watch these scenarios play out in the people of God and I... And I realize how many moments of crisis and, and failure and fickleness and sin and fleshliness could be avoided if we had right biblical expectations of the people around us and the God whom we serve. It's astonishing at how widespread the devastation is with regards to this one simple issue. Part of it is our, our entertainment culture has saturated us with these illusions about reality, these ideas about the way things are supposed to be. And, and it's fueled through our ability to control uh, the flows of information and to, to present certain things about ourselves in certain mediums and, and to make ourselves look a certain way. And then we look at other people and so we believe the reality about them is what we see and believe in that. And, and it's all just, it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. It's just a big Facebook fraud. That's all it is. The perfect lifestyle, the perfect body uh, that, that you can never attain, the perfect family, the perfect children. But the, the place that it devastates the most is the marriage relationship. Of all the earthly places, expectations implodes, the greatest damage is done to marriages. When two people can't live up to each other's expectations, they immediately begin to look towards 
some fantasy illusion of something in their mind, some satisfaction that's somewhere else in the next relationship, and they begin to run and chase after that. And no matter how long they run, and no matter how hard they try, it always leads to nothing but pain, suffering, and emptiness. Most divorces are based on the frustration of unfulfilled entitlement expectations. I bet you'd be hard-pressed this morning to find a single marriage in this room. You don't know anybody. You've never met anybody that's been married. That this isn't an issue somewhere in their marriage. It may not be manifesting itself because sometimes there, some of us have such subtle little fraudulent expectations that we have spouses that, that are able to just, you know, overcome and, and manage. But it's slowly chipping away at their soul. It's slowly penetrating into the innermost part of who they are. And it's slowly building a wound that's going to take a long, long time to heal. We get married and we bring all our hopes and dreams and expectations into that marriage. And we marry somebody who brings hopes and dreams and expectations into the marriage. Let me illustrate it to you. If you flip your listening guide over to the back, you'll see that that list I put on there of her expectations and his expectations. This is from Dr. Willard Harley. He's one of the foremost researchers on marriage. He spent his entire life researching this issue of expectations. And so at the conclusion of all of his research and, and, and uh, interviews of hundreds and hundreds of couples, and here's the list of in order of the most common prevalent expectations that men and women bring to the marriage relationship. Now, I draw your attention to it for this simple reason. You notice on there that there's nowhere that they line up the same. In fact, in most cases, they're polar opposites. And you wonder why we have so much trouble. And what we need to do is take an honest look. We need to take an inventory of our inner thoughts that have a tendency to blur our perceptions. You see, because the, the, there's, there, there's danger in perception. Because you don't know your perception is a perception. Because to you, your perception is reality. Perception is real in the eyes of the beholder. And so what you think about me is real to you no matter how wrong you are. And what I think about you is real to me no matter how wrong I am. And what happens when you're married to that person? And you've never had a conversation about expectations. And so here's what we do over time. This isn't just a marriage problem. Listen. There's some of you that the pattern of your life is, is dissatisfaction. You're frustrated with everybody. You're dissatisfied with everything. Nobody can ever do anything good enough to meet your standard. You're mad at the drive through You're mad at the dry cleaner. You're mad at your neighbors. You're mad at your pastor. You're mad at your spouse. You're mad at your kids. You're mad at their teachers. You're always mad at somebody. And you don't understand why everybody is such a moron around you. And the whole time, you're investing all this internal energy in trying to get us on your side. Again, I hate to harp on it, but ladies and gentlemen, log on to Facebook. It's real obvious who's got a problem. You're trying to get me on your side against something. Hey, you got an issue. I don't know anything about that. Got an expectation problem. 
So here's what we do. We erect these mental images in our mind. I mean, they're monuments. We, we, we have these, these expectations. I mean, it, it, could be, it could be anything from, from, you know, the man who gets married and he has this, this expectation that he's never really realized, but suddenly he, 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 his wife figures out that he expects me to be like his mama. I'm not his mama, but he thinks I am his mama. But you didn't figure that out until you was already into this deal. And now you got to wean him. And he don't like it. But there's some, some men who got married, and everything they do, somehow their wife spins it back to their daddy. You know, couples, they're cruising along and everything's going good. And then they get pregnant and then they have kids. And then it dawns on them then after, you know, little Johnny comes into the world that, wait a minute, we, we always just assume that we agreed on how to discipline a child. But in reality, we never had a conversation about that. Man, we should have went to Pastor Tony for premarital counseling. We erect these, these images, these monuments in our, our mind, and they're, they're unrealistic, they're unfair, they're biased, but they're huge and they're solid. And we don't leave any room for flexibility. I mean, these things are like steel pillars. And when things don't go the way we think they should, we're either going to tumble or we're going to grumble. Or both. Either we go crashing down and retreat because we're devastated, or we're going to start grumbling and fighting, or we're going to do both. So here's my thesis. Basically, everything I've said this morning, I've said because I just want to say this right here. This sense right here. And I hope that when I say this, I prayed all week that, God, there'd be some people here this morning and like a light bulb, it would just go off in their mind. And they'd just go, my gosh, it's me. And God will set you free today. The chain of obligation built with the links of expectation binds us in the dungeon of disappointment. You see, you know what I know about faulty expectations? Is that they don't make you happy, they make you miserable. And everybody that I've ever talked to about this, and everybody that I've ever helped through this process, man, they, they want help. They, when they realize this, they want out. Because it's miserable. Man, the most miserable thing in the world is to be disappointed all the time. It's to always be expecting something from somebody and they, they always underdeliver. And when they're around people that just find joy in all their circumstances, they just don't, you know, it just annoys them. It's a dungeon. And to be a spouse, my gosh. To be married to somebody with high expectations, it's, it's torment. Torment. You've turned the sacred relationship of marriage into nothing more than a circus performance. Always trying to live up to what they want me to do. So I want to help you. I want to help you with what helped me. Four expectations that can end your marriage, but my goodness, they'll end your any relationship you can dream of. They're just, in particular, devastating in marriage. Number one, unspoken expectations. You see, I call faulty expectations phantoms. 
They're phantoms that live in your, inside your head. Because no one else has ever seen them and no one else has ever heard them. You're the only one that knows anything about them. They're determining your life. They dictate the way that you see the people around you and relate to everything around you. But you're the only one that knows them. You've never, ever once in your life, some of you for your entire life, for 50, 60, 70 years, you've walked around with a phantom inside your head determining all the ways that you see the things around you. And they're unspoken. You've never even had a conversation with anybody about them. You just assume that you're right and that everyone else would agree with you if they knew all the details or understandings. How many couples never just have a conversation about what do you expect from me and what do I expect from you? The more you can communicate your expectations, my goodness, the better prepared you are to face whatever is in your future. Listen to me. If today, you at the end of this message, grabbed your spouse, walked down to this altar, kneeled down at this altar and begged God, God, from this day forward, help me to rectify my expectations that they would be in line with what the Bible says is real and true, that me and my spouse would be on the same page, then listen to me. Whatever, there is no tragedy. There's no devastation. There's no suffering. There's nothing that could blindside you to the degree in which it would knock you completely off track. You can withstand anything in that relationship if you've dealt with this issue. Assuming that the two of you love Jesus. Get the phantoms out of your head. And speak them into existence so somebody else can hear them and understand them. And you can have a, realize whether they're good or bad or right or wrong. Number two, unclear expectations. See, this is a huge one. It's a huge one for me because I'll tell you one thing. If you, if you know anything about me and Lisa, spend any amount of time around us at all, you know that, that we have a phenomenal marriage, but that I'm fully aware of all the weaknesses. And one of them is, is half the time, I don't even know what she's talking about. I don't even know what, I have no idea what she's talking about. See, the worst thing that happened to me was when my daughter got married and moved out, I lost my translator. Because I'd say, Kayla, what's your mom talking about? Because I don't know. And I've learned not to say, honey, I don't know what you're talking about. Because that never helps the situation. So now I just look at my son. I go, what's your mom talking about? He goes, I ain't got no idea. I don't know. So, so listen, if, 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 if we're talking about two female friends or two male friends, well, then, then you don't have a problem. Just talk and everything will be fine. But if we're talking about a marriage relationship, then here's what you better do. Now, listen to me. I'm telling you. Whenever you say to your spouse, you verbalize what your expectations are, your spouse needs to say, now here's what I hear you saying. Is this right? Because trust me, you need verification, okay? I had 50 examples of this, but we don't have time. But I'm telling, because you all know it's true, my goodness. It's a, it's, it's a constant experience in my life. Number three, unmet expectations. See, these are those deep wounds that, that have been then been following you around for a long time. Sometimes these are from childhood and you're still dragging them around. And so you felt like there was a time in your life where there was clear expectations that everybody knew what they were, that there was no, there was no controversy about them, there was no issue, and then somebody broke them. So you had an expectation that your dad would love you. 
and raise you and provide for you and care for you. But then he left and found another family. And it created a wound. That, that unmet expectation created a wound in you. And now there's a spirit of abandonment that lives inside of you because somebody that you expected to always be there for you is no longer there. And so now you project that out to everybody in your life thinking that they're always going to leave you. You live in, in constant fear that you're going to be left because of an unmet expectation that happened a long time ago. Maybe it's an unmet expectation that happened in your current relationship. Commitments made in the marriage relationship should be the highest. They should be the highest. The most important commitments for you to live up to and not fail in, the most important ones on this earth are to your spouse. I'll fail you any day before I'll fail my wife. She's the person I do not want to fail the most besides Jesus. Because unmet expectations are devastating. Number four, unrealistic expectations. See, some of us have expectations. They're impossible for, for anyone to live up to. And you know... When the pattern of your life is dissatisfaction, and the source of that dissatisfaction is faulty expectations, it's never your fault, is it? It's always their fault for not doing what they ought to do, being who they ought to be. And the whole time, it's you. Don't miss the fact that the crowd is blaming everything on Jesus. That John the Baptist is taking out his frustration on Jesus. That Mary and Martha are bewildered and agitated because of Jesus. The problem's not Jesus. The problem's them. The problem's not your spouse. The problem's you. But we project that out onto other people. We have these unrealistic expectations. And here's the thing. Our spouse is not our Savior. God gave you a help meet. He didn't give you a Savior. They're not going to be perfect. They can never be perfect. They can't read your mind. And they're going to fail. So why on earth would you be shocked when they do? And Lord help you if you live in a place where when you fail, people are shocked by that too. What kind of glass house have you built? Unrealistic expectations destroy from the inside out. That's what makes them so brutal. It's an inside-out destruction. All right, so what should we do? Well, we should... Viewing marriage as a place primarily for getting rather than giving is very dangerous. You see, when you start addressing these expectations you have in your life and you start going through these questions I put on the back of your listening guide, you need to, you need to focus on these next two statements. It's, you, you need to focus on giving, not receiving. That marriage is about giving, not receiving. Let me give you some, some uh, example of that. So wrong, a wrong belief would be something like this. I have the right to expect my marriage partner to meet my needs. I, I, if I had a nickel, I'd be a bazillionaire. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said this in their own phraseology in my office. Well, I mean, it's just basic Common dignity. It's just basic needs. I mean, we're talking about basic things. And I'm sitting in my chair thinking, we're talking about basic sinners. What did you expect? 
What did you expect? What you don't want is to start executing your rights. As soon as you start executing your rights in a relationship, there's going to be problems. See, they're telling Jesus, we have a right. The Romans are wrong. We have a right to be set free. John the Baptist is saying, I have a right to be out of jail. Mary and Martha are saying, I have a right to have a brother that's alive. You're saying, well, I have a right to have a spouse that meets my needs. Well, I have a right to have a husband who's going to treat me the way I ought to be treated. Be careful. What we ought to be saying is God expects me to keep my marriage commitment. And I'm going to look to the Lord to provide my deepest needs and allow Christ to love and serve my mate through me. You know what? They don't do what they ought to do. They don't treat me the way they ought to treat me. They're they're not what they ought to do. Now understand something. I'm not talking about abuse. But you look to the Lord to provide your deepest needs. Don't look to your spouse. Your spouse can't do that. That was week one. Remember the puzzle pieces? That was the first message in this series. So great marriages major on grace and forgiveness because we all need lots of it, don't we? Grace and forgiveness. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's the reason we're here, isn't it? We wouldn't be sitting in this room if we didn't come to a place in our life where we realized our need for grace and forgiveness, would we? So what are you going to do when Jesus doesn't respond to you the way you want Him to? What's going to be your response to that? What happens when your spouse doesn't live up to your expectations? What happens when your health doesn't change? What happens when your kids don't get better? What happens when your job doesn't come through? What happens? What expectation will that bump into? Have we believed something that we want to be true? Or are we grounded and founded in what is actually the truth? What has God said? We can't come in here and sing songs of praise about the resurrection. If what we really wanted was restitution. You, you can't pretend to be excited about the resurrection if, 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 if all it was for you was to get out of jail. Was, you, you, just wanted, you just wanted forgiveness. You just wanted a clean slate. You just wanted to, to start over. Did God promise you He was going to make it easy for you? Did He say He was going to clear the path for you and take away all the bumps in the road? He was going to, he was going to move all the troubles away? Is that what God said? Or did God say that every single tragic scenario that befalls pagan lost deniers of Him would befall His followers? But that He'd never leave you and never forsake you. I didn't put this on your notes because I didn't think I need to. But it may be the most important thing I say today. At the bottom of your expectations, at the end of all of the things that you expect and believe to be true about all the relationships in your life and every thought that you have about 
Jesus and His role in your life this morning, at the bottom of all of that, just make sure that your final greatest expectation is that God is sovereign and He is good. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what befalls you, no matter what circumstances, scenarios, pain, suffering, agony, God is sovereign and He's good. He's good. Because when everything starts screaming that He's not good, and your heart is breaking like He's not good, just remember. Sometimes our Lazarus has to die for the greater miracle. For the bigger narrative. For the, for the purpose we don't see or understand. But God never said He would be who we thought He'd be or who we said He would be. It's always been who He said He would be and only who He said He would be. And so, can we just agree this morning? We all need grace and forgiveness. All of us. That's what we need. And I don't know about you, but, but I want to be married to somebody who has grace and forgiveness. I want to be in relationships with people who know their need for grace and forgiveness. I want to be a giver of grace and forgiveness. And I want to be a receiver of grace and forgiveness. Don't you? Yes. And so that all starts at the cross. Listen, you can't give what you don't have. So... In just a minute, we're all going to stand up and it's an opportunity for you to respond to whatever your expectations are. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are people in this room that are, that are resistant and hesitant to, to come to Christ because you have faulty expectations that have been built on experiences that you've had with people but that weren't God. Marriages, they could be healed this morning by just saying, God, examine our expectations. Wounds from way back that we've been carrying healed as we just release these unmet expectations. Every Sunday, I expect God to do something great when we get together. Because I know He can. I know He can. And we so oftentimes get to see Him do that. Maybe this morning... Your relationship or your situation or your circumstance or your life are going to be that miracle that we've expected today, maybe. Let's stand and bow our heads.